This is The Medical Republic. I'm Felicity Nelson. Today, we're talking with health professionals about what's happening at the front lines of the COVID-19 response. The situation is evolving quickly. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, the 11th of March. First up, I've got Dr. Brad Mackay with us. Uh, Dr. Mackay is a Sydney GP who says his clinic is in crisis mode due to the COVID-19 outbreak. Dr. Mackay, so you were saying that you haven't had any COVID-19 positive patients yet. What's causing this crisis? Uh, yeah, I've been swabbing lots of people, um, but no, none have come back positive yet. Uh, the the crisis is, well, crisis mode, trying to cope <laughs> with a crisis rather than the clinic being in too much of a crisis. Uh, but yeah, it's just a really weird transition. Um, I think a lot of people at the moment uh, in GP clinics will be seeing this weird transformation going on from just run of the mill, seeing patients as they as they come in, like uh, like every day, to then going, okay, well, where do we put patients that could be infectious? Um, how do we put on our protective equipment? Um, what swabs do we need to use? How are we going to get in contact with patients when the results come back? How urgent are the results? Um, yeah, like how do we field questions that are coming through in through the phone line? There's so many aspects to this that um, that like we've thought about it a little bit, but it, it just seems like the um, yeah the rubber's hitting the road this week, and we're just trying to get our heads around it um, and trying to be safe for our own health and also for our patients health uh, so yeah um, there's equipment everywhere and um, uh, yeah we're, we're still um, trying to uh, to look a little bit more professional as the days continue <laughs> um, and do you feel like you're starting to get a handle on what it is that you need to do uh, in the next couple of days and weeks as a GP practice? Uh, well, we're starting to, to figure things out. Um, one, one of the, we, we had a staff meeting the other day um, and we were talking about like, well, should we even be swabbing patients? And we're hearing that other clinics are just saying, look, we, we just don't have the facility. You have to go up to the hospital. So a lot of, a lot of the doctors that I was working with said, um, oh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll just send them up to the, the local public hospital. They've got a coronavirus clinic that's just started up there. Um, maybe they'll be able to take a, the load and we don't need to do any swabs and that will make our lives a lot easier. Um, and I just said, um, how about we ask the hospital first? And so, um, so we went up to the hospital and um, found the green line that was, uh, that was painted on the ground um, leading to the coronavirus clinic. Uh, and they just said, look, we're, we've got hundreds of patients. Uh, we've been swabbing like 150 patients on Monday, 200 patients on Tuesday. Um, we just don't have the capacity so we, we want you to swab your own patients in your own clinic. Uh, and so they, they weren't really willing to, to take on the load, which is fair enough. Um, I'm, I'm hearing sort of yeah horror stories around different hospitals where they're just trying to, to, to do their best. Um, and if general practices aren't taking some of that load, um, then it's going to fall apart even quicker than, than what it looks like it's doing at the moment. And I, I, there's certainly a place for general practices to, uh, to do swabs. Um, but yeah, we just need to have um, the facility, the guidance. Um, and this is one of the issues that people are bringing up is, is the leadership. 
Um, we even um, had an argument about who we should be swabbing, what are the criteria, um, and one of my colleagues um, sort of brought out the criteria and said, well, this is this is what I found online, this is what we should be doing, um, and I just looked over his shoulder and said, look, that's South Australia, what are our guidelines? So <laughs> like, there, there is this inconsistency between the states, um, and I, I think um, like a lot of the information that I find is sort of up to date um, via Twitter and, uh, and through the media, and I, I think a a lot of people are, are worried that we're just not getting the updates through um, through official channels. Um, that that Twitter works a lot faster um, than uh, than announcements or, or an email update that might come every sort of like two or three days. So uh, it it is difficult, and I think um, people are, are struggling to get our our heads around it. Uh, I think we're just starting to get a bit of a flow, um, and I. I sort of see over the next few weeks that it's just going to get worse. And there was an announcement this morning from the federal government um, and they said they're going to bring in some new fever clinics um, across the country to try and take some of the load off GPs. Um, And they were also introducing a new telehealth uh, funding scheme so that GPs can bulk bill some of their um, consultations for telehealth patients. Um, Do you think that's enough? Uh, So do you know what the code is that we can use for Medicare yet? Uh, I really don't know all the details. <laughs> yeah, oh, that, well, that, that hasn't been announced, so that'll be good when it comes yeah. through. Um, okay. Maybe by the time this podcast comes out. Um, but yeah, like I, I think where where are the fever clinics going to be? Is it um, is it the fever clinics that are setting up at the public hospitals? So um, if it is the ones that are sort of starting to set up, and then our clinic's been told don't send anybody there. Like what? What does that mean? So uh, we're we're trying to sort of redesign our waiting room, sort of quartering off like one half of it. Um, apparently, builders are coming in at some stage. I don't know how uh, how involved this is going to be uh, from our management team. Uh, but yeah, like uh, we we're trying to do what we can. So and if we if we can create that, do we get funding from the government to uh, to bring in the builders and to to um to change the waiting room so it can be um less infectious to everybody? Uh, there's all these questions that are there and. I think the government's doing uh, as much as they can. Um, but, yeah, we, we are needing that clear guidance. Mm, okay, that makes sense. So, I mean, I've been following it minute by minute and I don't really know, how, you know, how you would bill a telehealth consultation. I don't know how you would find out about funding. Um, yeah, I, I get the, <laughs> the point. It seems uh, it's it's difficult to... Yeah. Well, um, I, I think some patients are willing to, to to pay for like a telephone call. Um, they're wanting reassurance. They're wanting guidance. Um, and so even if there isn't a Medicare um, fee that they can get, um, people are willing to pay for it privately. Um, so it, it's um, unhelpful if people can't afford to pay that, and that's why they're trying to bring in the, the Medicare um, rebate for it. But uh, I think GPs shouldn't be sort of a, a afraid to provide services if people are demanding it. Um, if, if there is an agreement between patients and, uh, and the clinic um, that a, a phone call could be $20, um, for example, um, or a telehealth consult could be $50 to $60, that's what people are looking at at present, um, then that um, can help the, the clinic to sustain that um, and patients will get the care that they're wanting and requesting. Um, but again, like we, we like I'm, I'm sort of a believer in social medicine and I want, I want people to be able to get healthcare and not have to pay through the nose for it. Um, and yeah, like I, I'm in a bit of a quandary with my ethical um, <laughs> uh, um, queries about uh, charging more private fees. Mm, yeah. 
Now that's interesting. And is that something that you're doing at your clinic? So are you introducing telehealth consultations and asking patients to chip in, say, you know, $20, $30? Well, we, we discussed it at the staff meeting this week and um, and everyone sort of like looked at me and their jaws sort of dropped and they were like, how do we do this? <laughs> so, so like, it's really, it, it's, I can't, like, I'm not a business person. I'm a GP, um, but I can't imagine that it's too difficult to, to set up um, and for, for practice managers to sort of go, okay, well, yeah, look, this is the fee. This is what we charge. We'll get somebody's credit card details over the phone. Fine. We'll charge them privately. If people are, are happy to do it and they're, they're panicking at home and $20 would be enough to sort of like, yeah, have a, have a five minute conversation and help to appease some of their, their worry or help to give them some guidance, um, then I think that's that's dollars well worth um, spending. Uh, if we get the rebates um, through and the codes through soon, then that will be even more helpful. Uh, but yeah, the other thing is we want to know who we need to swab and what the what the criteria are. And what, what people are, are, are saying to me at the moment is that um, when they're swabbing people at the hospital, it's often not people who are unwell. Um, people are coming in because their boss has told them to get clearance. Um, so people are having a throat swab or a nose swab um, to appease their work requirement. Um, they might have um, just come back from interstate and, and have a little bit of a, a sniffle. They haven't been, as far as we're aware, in contact with somebody with coronavirus. Um, they're not incredibly unwell. Um, they don't have a massive fever. Um, they don't um, have uh, even a sore throat. Um, and they're, they're coming in to sort of like have a nasal swab so they can go back to work. Um, we're told that there's a 24-hour turnaround time from those swabs, um, and this is what patients are expecting as well. So they're disappointed when we say that they may have to wait for three or four or five days, um, like some of my patients have, um, before those tests come back. Um, they sort of want an instant result so they can just go back to work. Uh, but even a ne negative result could still be a false negative test. Um, there's no way of sort of going, oh, well, yeah, you definitely don't have coronavirus. Like you could be have been infected and then start to um, to exhibit symptoms um, later on or start to be like be an asymptomatic carrier and be able to spread it to other people. So I think this expectation um, from the public um, is is higher than what the, the reality is from science and uh, and yeah, like if if bosses are sending people into the hospital, no wonder we're having hundreds of patients um, going in to to have a swab stuck up their nose, um, but may not be any benefit for anyone and just be overloading the pathology services. There are plenty of people who are in a high risk group and they've just come back from overseas and they, they should be swabbed. But there are people who haven't left the country and they, they haven't been in, in contact with anyone. And so I think there is that panic. And if we don't have appropriate criteria that's there, it's no wonder that people are a bit confused about whether they need a test or not, particularly if their doctors are confused about whether they need the test or not. Mm, and the number of people who would ordinarily be having cold or flu-like symptoms anyway is, I imagine, quite a high number of Australians, you know, even if they don't have COVID-19. Mm, well, um, the, the weather's changing at the moment. It's going yeah. hot and cold. We've had rain in Sydney. It's uh, like everything's going going a little bit nuts with the weather. And with that often comes a few more coughs and colds and splutters and sinusitis infections. And so we're trying to cope with that. And then we've got this overflow of everybody who's sort of like worried, um, but not too bad. Um, and yeah, a lot of it is more worried about um, infecting other people. 
Um, I see a lot of young people coming to my clinic who who are very mildly unwell, um, and they're they're petrified about giving it to their grandparents. Um, they're mm-hmm. they're worried about going to work because there's like a, a a lady who I work with who is on chemotherapy. Will I kill her by going to work today? So th- there are all of these questions, um, and I I think there's no there's often no easy answers. That's that's what we're dealing with here, um, and I think GPs need to be um, offering reassurance for patients. We need to be providing um, a, a rational view of things, um, and like uh, I suppose one of the one of the criteria for sort of swabbing everyone around who might have a sniffle is when it's being um, spread from person to person quite freely around Australia. And I think we're we're wondering if that's already happening, and we're not picking it up. Um, and and time will tell. Um, hopefully, we'll know in the next sort of like four to six days. It may be uh, in the next uh, sort of two weeks, but um, it will eventually happen. We know that that will be inevitable. Mm. And do you know what the false positive and false negative rate are for those tests? Uh, hard to t- had to know um, from what I've been reading online on Twitter and through the media. <laughs> Uh, is that, uh, that it's highly sensitive so it, sh- it should uh, like if, if we're getting the right sample um, then it should be testing up positive so with the PCR it should be um, an adequate test but again like it's all very new um, and we're sort of trusting a little bit with what's going on for any new che- new tests that we bring in where we're trusting what the pathologists are telling us. Mm, yeah because that's the problem if you're testing lots of people with mild symptoms you have a very low risk of having COVID-19. Obviously, even if the false positive rate is low, it'll increase if you're testing lots and lots of people. Um, so yeah, it would be, I, I'm trying to get a pathologist on the phone to talk about this, but they're all very busy. Yeah, I can imagine that they're trying to invent new machines and new software to, uh, to handle everything that, that's coming through. So I, I'm not surprised that you couldn't get anybody on the phone today. Next up, we've got uh, Trish Han on the show. Trish is a Sydney-based diagnostic radiographer, um, and she's also a committee member of Australian Skeptics. So she's been tweeting quite a bit about coronavirus and some of the very strange events happening at the hospital where she works. So it's not just baboons that are on the loose that she's uh, been watching, um, but we've uh, had the public stuffing their pockets with surgical masks um, when they think no one's watching and and makeshift coronavirus testing centres popping up. Um, So Trish, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So do you want to fill us in what's been happening out there in the wild country of you know, coronavirus clinics. At RPA, we've had a coronavirus clinic running now since mid-February, no, early February, actually. Um, and when it first set up, it was a really little area. It had a separate entrance, which was great. Um, it was just around the corner from the emergency department. And they were seeing a steady but not ridiculous amount of patients. Um, then late last week, they actually relocated the clinic because the numbers were getting unmanageable. So the clinic is now situated again. It has a separate entrance to the hospital, but it's now in a much larger area. And yesterday, for example, there were 250 patients coming through the coronavirus clinic. Wow. And how many of them had coronavirus, do you think? Uh, We don't know yet because we haven't got the results through yet. But we are getting a very, very small but steady rise in coronavirus patients. Now, obviously, a lot of them are being sent home with masks and instructions. um, But we do have some admissions to the hospital as well. 
And have you seen any sort of odd behaviour or strange behaviour? I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of panic buying of toilet paper. We've mm-hmm. seen th- some things happening that, yeah, just, just seem very odd. Yeah, so one thing they've had to do is, um, so the area where the clinic kind of waiting area is, um, is down on the ground floor and there's a big lobby area above it, which is a couple of stories. So it's quite easy to look down onto the clinic. And so today they've actually put up these massive canopies covering that waiting area because I'm assuming that people were taking photographs of the patients that were down there, maybe filming it perhaps. And so there's now big signs everywhere saying filming is prohibited. And now these big gazebos are covering that entire area to protect those patients and their privacy. And do you know where those patients came from? Have they been referred from GP practices? Um, so I think most of these are actually walk up, but I know that obviously there are some referrals, but some clinics, um, sorry, some GP centres are able to actually do the testing themselves, not all of them. And obviously not all of them have the capacity. So again, you know, because it's a walk up clinic and you don't need an appointment, anyone can rock up and have a test. Mm. And do you know how long it takes to get the test results back? Um, I don't at the moment. I think it... <sighs> I know it's at least overnight, but I know that obviously they're working really hard to try and get rapid testing done as well. So people go home and then do they get a call from the hospital? Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah, they get full instructions on what not to do, because as soon as you're suspected, you have to treat it as if you are, because obviously the last thing you want is to you know, go off and hug and kiss all of your mates and go to the office and cough all over your keyboard and then find out the next day that, oh, yes, you are actually positive. So they get full instructions. They also get masks and instructions on how to wear those masks, which is just as important as the mask itself. And then they just have to wait for the results. What are the instructions for people who are suspected of having coronavirus? So it's social isolation. I'm pretty sure they have little mm. information sheets for them and also they'll they'll tell them as well. Um, last I heard, they had them in several languages because obviously we have to give it not only in Mandarin, Cantonese, but Italian and maybe Farsi, a whole bunch of languages. You know, it's, it's very much a, a worldwide problem. And do you know where they're sending the samples off to? Which pathology group they're using? I'm under the impression we're doing it in-house. Huh, okay, but- that's interesting. That's just something from what I've overheard. Like one thing that is incredibly frustrating is we have, you know, that we have an internet which is available for everyone in the hospital, but the actual information that's getting out there on the internet is really, really minimal. So I'm actually finding out a lot from either eavesdropping on conversations with colleagues or from Twitter itself. You know, I've seen other anaesthetists that I work with tweeting things and I read it and I've gone, oh, that's interesting indeed. You know, that's that's not something I was aware of before. So the actual mm. official information is is very, very limited. And that is incredibly frustrating when you are on the front line. And do you have sort of people queuing up outside the hospital? Yeah, there were queues yesterday because obviously 250 people takes quite a lot of time to get through. I think there were mm. backlogs of about five and a half, six hours, but they're open from 8am till 10pm. So it's a good sort of chunk of time to cover everyone. But yeah, they're obviously at busy at times, like, you know, if people maybe dropping their kids off at school and then <laughs> going to get tested, who knows? They've given it a separate entrance to the hospital and there's actually a security guard guarding the top of the street. So the patients mm. that are coming out could very well be from anywhere. So you wouldn't necessarily know that they've come from the clinic. They've done that very deliberately to make sure that people can't be harassed by the press because that security guard is there basically the whole time the clinic is open. Oh, that's excellent. So people Mm. can be sort of anonymous. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And have you heard anything from 
colleagues or people you know, uh, maybe at other hospitals, about their response? Is it similar or different? Um, I've heard some worries from other smaller hospitals because I know that Concord, for example, have got a coronavirus clinic as well, and they are much, much smaller. Um, and I think just generally people are worried that they don't have the staff. Now, obviously, the good thing is that a lot of elective work is being postponed. So that means that the staff who would be doing things like knee replacements or stuff like that are now available. But of course, they've gone from being like, say, orthopedic staff to suddenly, oh, you're going to be expected to be in the lion's den, <laughs> sobbing people with aerosolized coronavirus. That's interesting. So you've got specialists who have stopped elective surgery who are now helping out with the, the coronavirus clinics. Yeah, you've got orthopedic doctors trying trying desperately to find their stethoscopes again. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any issue with that um, in terms of training? I, I, does it take a lot of training to do a swab? I don't. I guess not. No, because all they're doing is taking a history, taking a swab. Like it's the kind of thing that you could probably have medical students doing if it wasn't so risky. Hmm. Yes. And do you have a lot of protective equipment? Um, do you have a lot of personal protective equipment? Uh, well. <laughs> Yesterday we actually had a training session for how to safely put it on and take it off, but we had to mime putting on and taking off masks because we don't have any. So wow, <laughs> yeah. The, the people in the coronavirus clinic, they, uh, do, yeah. they have access. So what does the protective equipment look like? So we have these plastic gowns which cover basically the whole of the front of your body, so all the way from your thumbs across your arms and then all the way down to your knees. Um, so that's a proper full length gown. And then they also have goggles or visors um, and masks and gloves. Right. Wow. Okay. And does that um, get washed at the end of the day or does it all get? Oh, it's away? all disposable. It's all. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're killing the planet because we're going through plastic like no one can say. <laughs> mm. And that's problematic if we can't replenish supply of some of those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And do you think that it will be possible for Australia to scale up how they deal with this virus in a similar way to what you've done at your hospital? So just sort of divert resources, ramp up the protection, the security, the system so that the disease is kind of not spreading around the hospital. Do you think that's something that's doable? I think it, it is, but the thing you have to bear in mind is that there are so many places which are already under-resourced on a good day. So, for example, um, where we are, you know, we've got in our main hospital, we've got three CT scanners. Now, there's talk of using CT as a screening tool for COVID because it actually is more sensitive than the um, normal PCR tests. So the talk about using CT scanners is fantastic, except for the fact that we are already desperately short on radiographers to you know, use that equipment. And also, who's going to be writing the reports? Because we are also desperately short on radiologists as well. So we have this issue where, yes, we could divert a lot of resources, but these resources are already very, very stretched as it is. Thank you so much for, um, <laughs> for giving up your evening to chat to me. <laughs> no worries at all. Have a good one. You've been listening to The Medical Republic. I'm Felicity Nelson. If you've got a story about COVID-19 and how your GP clinic's dealing with this situation, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me at felicity at medicalrepublic.com.au. Thanks for listening.